hello and welcome to the third episode of Syslog. Uh, so back in the last summer, Julian and I were at the Chaos Communication Camp and we decided to do a podcast and talk to various people about systems projects because there's lots of cool and interesting projects going on out there. Um, and today our guest is Michael Engel, who recently uh, joined NTNU in Trondheim uh, as a professor. And um, I think there's lots of sustainability in today's episode. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, welcome to Germany. So <laughs> good to hear you're yeah. still alive over there. <laughs> yeah, Michael is uh, our first remote guest. He joins us uh, via the internet um, directly from Norway. And I think this is a good um, initial question. So what drove you to Norway? Well, essentially, um, I would say mostly more opportunities to do research and to have some impact. So in Germany, I was a professor at a small polytechnic university in Coburg, which was in itself quite an interesting position. I was mostly working with embedded systems, so system level things from hardware to software. And I was teaching a yeah, quite successful operating system construction course. But professors at German Polytechnic Universities have a teaching load of 18 hours per week which doesn't, to be honest, leave much time for teaching, uh, for research, obviously. <laughs> so here the conditions are quite a bit better. And of course, NTNU is the largest and best technical university in Norway. So, yeah. Uh, but that's, of course, not the only reason. The city and the country is pretty beautiful. The people are very nice. We have excellent students here. So lots of good reasons to come here and maybe to stay. So there are people, uh, there are places that are still nice to foreigners. Good, good job finding that. Um, sorry, Flo was laughing. Um, so the, the one interesting thing is that uh, you took over the uh, chair for compiler design. Is that what it's officially called? Yes, it's uh, compiler design, uh, which is not a chair, but just an associate professor position. But uh, well, we don't distinguish too much between these things here in Norway, I suppose. Oh, yeah, that's probably a very German thing. But um, actually, our topic today is uh, more in the direction of sustainability. And I would be interested in uh, where you see the, the connection between compiler design and sustainability. Well, uh, IT is obviously a large contributor to all of the problems we have concerning global warming, climate crisis, whatever you might call it. And so... In general, of course, everyone's talking about this problem now. Temperatures on Earth are rising. Global warming is expected to have significant impact on our future life. And you especially see this here in Norway. So just last week, there was a series in TV here with people just uh, taking a camera, exploring regions uh, north of the polar circle, which were mostly permafrost before. And now they've actually thought and so there's uh, things happening uh, that haven't happened there for hundreds of years probably because simply temperatures have gone up significantly so we had temperatures above 10 degrees plus north of the polar circle in january here so something is happening that's undeniable what exactly it is nobody knows but anyways uh, it's a good idea from my point of view to help 
doing something to try to reverse these effects. Now, what does software have to do with it or compilers? Now, uh, there are several statistics and most of those say that IT systems contribute more than 10% to the global energy consumption. So worldwide, if we can reduce the energy consumption of IT devices, we can have some significant impact on effects of global warming and similar things. So what's driving my research is, so as someone from an operating systems and compilers background, what can we as computer scientists actually do to help fight global warming? So this is actually part of your research objective? Yes, uh, I just uh, submitted a small research application here on this topic and actually sustainability or the Norwegians name, name it Barekraft, very nice word, <laughs> is uh, one of the driving forces of research which uh, NTNU put into its motto and into its vision for the future. So it fits right in uh, to these objectives and it also fits with my previous research which involved things like non-functional properties of software. So for example, taking care of energy consumption of embedded devices and reducing it or uh, ensuring uh, dependability of devices even if parts of the hardware break and automatic parallelization of C code for multi-cores in order to improve uh, computational power while uh, still taking care of energy consumption for mobile devices, IoT, whatever you can imagine there. Do you have an example of what can be done in uh, embedded devices to reduce energy consumption? Well, quite, quite a lot. So um, you can attack uh, things from several directions. So of course, on the one hand, uh, The obvious thing is just to employ efficient use of power saving modes, reducing unnecessary computations, uh, using hardware accelerators maybe where it's possible. So everyone has this problem, you know, you have your mobile phone, you're doing some things over the day and you have to recharge it every evening. I mean, that's possible if you don't forget it, that's fine. But when you think of uh, sensors in IoT systems, which are spread over Uh, several square kilometers to do environmental monitoring. These things have to work with batteries. So if, if they run out of battery, you won't be able to find them again because you just threw them out of a helicopter or something and uh, they work until uh, they run out of battery and just send data over radio. And so we produce quite a high amount of e-waste there. And if you manage to get these devices to work for, I don't know, twice the time, so two years instead of one year, you can have a significant impact here also. But this is dynamic energy consumption, which is an important thing. But uh, we also uh, think about uh, having a more holistic approach to this. Maybe I should uh, provide a bit of a background of all this sustainability measurements and what's happening here. Because everybody's talking about uh, carbon dioxide emissions and actually nobody really knows what's going on, I suppose. So carbon dioxide is just something like a currency for emissions of all sorts. So essentially you break down the uh, impact of emitting certain substances like gases into the atmosphere and then say, uh, well, for uh, emitting gas XY, it has five times the impact of emitting the same amount of carbon dioxide. So it's not just CO2 emissions here, which usually come from yeah, generating power for powering devices, like uh, you burn fossil fuels and stuff, but also for many other things. 
And uh, this is what we wanted to investigate here. So essentially not just look at runtime energy consumption, but also uh, we wanted to take a look at the whole life cycle of device. Because if you want to optimize the uh, yes environmental impact, so reduce the CO2 equivalent uh, emissions, uh, you actually should figure out first where it's actually worthwhile to start reducing things. And that's not only in runtime, which yeah, that, is maybe a bit surprising. That would be an interesting question. So how much uh, of the CO2 footprint of a device goes into manufacturing the device and how much is then yes. uh, how much is we, the, the runtime cost of this? Um, so, so first, maybe just some some additional information on CO2 equivalents, which are interesting because, uh, especially in manufacturing electronic devices, there are uh, gases used that are, have a much higher uh, environmental impact than CO2. So, one of the gases used is uh, SF6, which is sulfur hexafluoride, and this is known as the most potent greenhouse gas in existence. Now, this uh, is something you won't find in nature, so it's manufactured uh, in a synthetic way. And it does not have a natural sink, so it doesn't really have anything to react with to be destroyed in a natural way, like a breakdown due to sunlight or ultraviolet radiations or something like that. So essentially, when you emit SF6 in a production process, it simply accumulates in the atmosphere, and it takes up to 3,000 years for it to break down. And uh, the impact is significantly higher uh, than uh, CO2. So one ton of, of uh, sulfur hexafluoride emitted into the atmosphere has about the same effect as about 24,000 tons of CO2. And this SF6 is a very important component for producing electronics. It's used in production of uh, LC displays, of high-voltage isolators, for etching semiconductors, for cleaning semiconductors. And there are papers that analyze that about 10 to 15 percent of the SF6 is actually not recycled because it just evaporates into the atmosphere. And so this has a really significant impact here. So production is one thing most people actually don't look at because they don't have any insight into what's happening there. So can you tell us something about how much of this gas is used? I mean, it's no, difficult to find find concrete numbers. There are some papers, but you only usually find relative numbers uh, of amounts. So that seems to be a trade secret for most companies, because it gives us probably quite some interesting insight <laughs> for the competition into production processes. So I couldn't find any concrete numbers on this. But uh, well, just considering the amount of LC displays produced for, for everything we use today, I would imagine it's quite significant. So essentially one, one question was the impact of production on uh, the CO2 emissions or equivalents. Now, uh, what you do is you do some sort of life cycle analysis. And we did this about 10 years ago at uh, TU Dortmund. Uh, so this was a joint publication by my former boss, Peter Marvidel. Hello, if you listen to this <laughs> and myself. And so we analyzed two scenarios, just going from very rough numbers, you know, like some back of the envelope calculations to actually figure out where the impact actually is highest. So we analyzed two platforms. One is a standard desktop PC with a weight of, let's say, 20 kilograms. 
uh, that is uh, shipped by boat uh, from somewhere in Asia where it's manufactured and maybe it's used for four years and it's a typical office PC so maybe you're using it for 1800 hours per year. And so we estimated the dynamic energy consumption or uh, the dynamic power consumption uh, for a PC to be 95 watts. So it's a typical office PC without any high-end graphic cards and stuff like that. And a power-conserving LC display with about 25 watts. And uh, over four years, that means that uh, the operating energy spent on yeah, running the device only... Uh, makes up around 35% of the overall energy over the life cycle of a device. So uh, more than 60% actually uh, are effectively used in producing the device. So starting with yeah, getting the raw materials, manufacturing that stuff and so on. We also did an analysis of transportation. So what does it actually cost to bring that device over from Asia to Germany, for example? Uh, so for transporting this via sea on a vessel it's only about 0.2% for the uh, ship transport and if you have to transport it for the last mile over land it's an additional 0.1% so overall the CO2 emissions were around 700 kilograms for the life cycle of this device so this is actually super interesting that uh, the thousands of kilometers in a cargo vessel are pretty much uh, nothing compared to the rest um, yes. of the production. Yes, this will change significantly. And we have another example when you go uh, to air cargo. Uh, so a vessel really is huge. So you can put thousands and thousands of, of computers in. So even if vessels are not very energy efficient and they burn the worst thing you can imagine, I mean, you can just probably power them using a, a bucket of old paint or something, right? <laughs> And I think people in Hamburg are always pretty unhappy when the big boats come in, big ships come in, because, uh, well, they don't have any filters for emissions, stuff like that. So if you live close to the Elbe River or close to Hamburg Harbor, you probably have some really bad smells over the day. So let anyways, me, let uh, me make a note in uh, yeah. the, the show notes to put this nice video um into it where you see one of the cargo vessels switching to the dirty fuel while still in harbor. Um, yeah, that's that's definitely interesting. So so here in Norway, actually, they just uh, employed the first vessel in this uh, famous tourist boat route, the Hurtigruten, which was originally a post boat service, uh, to employ electric drives whenever they're close to the coast in order to reduce emissions because these have uh, significantly increased here in Norway also because of quite high amounts of vessel traffic, I suppose. But you had a second uh, example. Right, so uh, standard PCs might not be the only interesting thing to analyze. So we analyzed something else, which is a standard notebook computer. So we uh, assumed a weight of four kilograms, including packaging and stuff for the notebook computers. And again, a use for four years at a reduced energy consumption. Um, so we assumed the notebook would use about 30 watts. And we also have an external display of 25 watts again. And we would use it again for about 1,800 hours each. Here the amount of uh, energy consumed by production 
obviously increases because the runtime energy consumption is reduced. So we're only at about 20% of the overall energy consumed for operating the device and almost 80% of the overall energy or CO2 equivalents used up in production. Which also means producing modern electronic devices is only feasible in countries where you have cheap energy because otherwise the cost of these devices might rise significantly. I think the last PC uh, factory in Germany just close, is closing down this year. This is the former Siemens and now Fujitsu um, yeah, plant in, in Augsburg in Germany. And I think they're just moving all, all their production capabilities to Asia also now. So essentially, this means 80% is going into production. And here we did an analysis of air transport compared to vessel transport. So vessel transport, again, is only about 0.1%. And air transport in a 747 or whatever you can imagine from East Asia would make about 1.3% of the overall emissions. So something that's actually countable. So uh, choosing same-day delivery is definitely uh, a dick move for the environment. So, um, so I can see that you have about one ton, 1.2 tons of CO2 equivalent for the production. Um, can you tell us a bit more how you arrived at those numbers? Um, uh, essentially, we used uh, statistics from uh, several publications we could find about the energy consumption used, about uh, uh, gases and so on. Uh, I think I should probably send you the link to our paper where, where you can read uh, about details because I, I don't think it would make sense to, to just recite the statistics here, right? Yeah, sure. Okay, so we'll so put that if, in so the show if notes. Our listeners, <laughs> right, if our listeners are interested, they can have a closer look, definitely, yes. So essentially... We're, we are still not talking about software because we are talking about manufacturing and, and stuff. So, of course, the big question is, what can we do on the software side to reduce this impact of manufacturing? And there maybe you have to think a bit outside of the box. So if you look at your current consumer devices, like your mobile phones, new devices come out every, whatever, six months, every year. So there's a new iPhone every year. And people are, well enticed to buy these devices because of new features or some software that only runs on the newest devices or better cameras and stuff like that. But the most sustainable way of using your old IT device would be to run it for, let's say, six instead of four years. Because then, well, you don't have to produce as many devices. And so the impact overall, if you look at a global level, of device production goes down significantly. But of course, That's not as easy because the industry, of course, wants to sell new devices. They want to make money from it. That's a problem we have to solve here. Okay, so um, do you see do you see actually some way to create incentives for people to use their devices longer? I mean, for, for businesses, the incentive is uh, the, the incentives are to sell as many devices as possible. And if you are a company like Google or Apple, where you've basically saturated your um, the amount of people you can sell to, the only thing you can optimize for is to sell more often to the same people. Right. So I don't think there can be direct incentives there. I think this is a problem we cannot solve on a computer science level alone. So there must be other incentives like taxes or disincentives, whatever, uh, brought into place to actually enable sustainable use of hardware. 
Now, the problem is that, of course, all these companies that are trying to sell you hardware have a nice bag of tricks uh, to actually yeah, convince you to buy something new every now and then. So I think the number one factor leading to a short lifetime of devices is on the one hand on the hardware side. So many devices are very hard to repair because things are glued down or soldered down. Uh, you are... Well, it's impossible to get spare parts for them. It's impossible to open these or, uh, well, uh, essentially uh, you can't find service for a device that's three years old because the company refuses to do service. So, you know, probably there's this right to repair movement, which is strong in the US and also here in Europe, which actually, yes, tries to introduce legislation that devices have to be repairable. I mean, in a modern mobile phone, you can't even exchange the battery on your own anymore just because it's glued down and whenever you try it, the possibility is pretty high that you actually destroy the device during that process. So that's the one thing. And that's something we probably cannot do much about on the software side. But what we can do is something else. So one of the other forces that drive the uh, well adoption of new hardware is actually, on the one hand, the lack of software updates. So many companies just stop supplying software updates after a year or two years when the device is actually working perfectly. Now, in earlier days, we would have said, okay, I'll just continue using my old software. Who cares? I mean, I'm happy with all the features it has, but we're living in a networked world, so our mobile phones and whatever is connected to the internet. So essentially, we need software updates enabled to continue operating these devices in a safe and secure way. So we need fixes for security problems. We need updates for new protocols uh, that enable encryptions, stuff like that. So, of course, this could be supplied. Now, the problem with this is security fixes themselves probably wouldn't exceed the capabilities of a two-year-old mobile phone, but mostly security fixes don't come on their own, but they're bundled with all sets of different upgrades with new features, stuff you want or stuff you may not want, but you simply don't have a choice what you can actually select from these updates. So essentially, uh, after a year or two, your vendor of your device might say, yes, we would dearly love to provide you with the newest Android version, but, you know, it's difficult because your device is too slow and it doesn't have enough memory for our 10 gigabyte update. But so, uh, I think the, the problem starts uh, a bit earlier because for most cheap phones it's actually super hard to find out how long you get uh, support anyway so for the for the top vendors it's not a problem so for samsung you can just look it up it says like oh we will provide x years of support uh, um, apple i think also does that um, but if you buy like a 80 euros android phone it's very likely it will never receive any updates and also when you buy it no one tells you and also, right. when you buy it, it's already outdated. It's already outdated. And there was there was a proposal from the CCC, so the German hacker community, to have uh, some something like a label on it, which is like, oh, this device is safe to operate until X. But even yeah. that is, seems to be impossible to, to get. I mean, this is an economical problem, because once you sold the device... Well, you're not going to earn more money with it. So software maintenance for a device that's no longer manufactured doesn't make economical sense. 
I can definitely understand this, but uh, of course this doesn't help your user. And so some way to get around this, of course, from the software side has been introduced in the last couple of years, I'd say. So especially, you know, in network services, uh, companies start not providing software to you, but just an access to network services like Office 365 or whatever you can imagine. So essentially, you're not buying a piece of software anymore, but you're renting a subscription. So this results in continuous income for the service provider. But of course, this comes with a big, big but because you no longer own the software. So whenever your service provider decides it doesn't want to support the service anymore, your cloud shuts down, whatever happens, or uh, your service provider just goes bankrupt, your service won't work any longer. And some of the services actually make it very, very hard to get data out of them again. So especially the big cloud providers. So incoming data is mostly free to your cloud instance, outgoing data. So when you want to have a backup externally from Amazon, Microsoft Cloud, whatever, you pay through the nose for every byte of data that goes out to your backup service. And this is not only in cloud systems for whatever web applications. This also is a problem for connected IoT devices. So uh, most of these devices nowadays require the use of a web account and a web service. And they check if all this works before they actually start to work, even if it's something stupid like a Bluetooth speaker. Uh, so there was a company, Sonos, uh, that actually got pretty famous in, uh, yes, uh, just uh, outdating all old hardware releases by no, no longer supplying software updates that were compatible with current versions uh, of their web services. And they even gave an incentive, uh, you know, if you actually select an option in your web service and say, I want to recycle this device, you get a discount for buying a new device and the firmware destroys itself automatically after 30 days. So you couldn't even sell it used. There was a big outcry about this, I think, two months ago on the internet. So this is very difficult because you have lots of hardware. And it's not, of course, only Sonos. That's what happened with Google Nest, for example. So these intelligent thermostats for your heating system. And many, many other devices which you just can't use anymore, even if they would be perfectly usable standalone, just because of their dependency to some network service, which is no longer available. Yeah, you can also see that in... Uh uh, in a, so a great example is if you um, download an old Android VM, like Android 2. Um, so the, all the software will work, but all the servers it wants to talk to don't exist anymore or don't speak uh, the APIs anymore. And so you end up yes. with a device that runs all the software it was shipped with, but uh, it's sort of still a graveyard because there's nothing it can talk to anymore. Um, right. I've, I've just seen an article yesterday on a blog uh, of some guy who managed to get a Nokia N9 phone, which was the last and only Linux phone Nokia produced before they actually sold their company to Microsoft. And I have one of these. And actually, when I read this article, I tried to get it running again. And I experienced exactly the same. So, yeah, the browser doesn't even work because the TLS version is too old. So there's only very limited functionality. And most of this is running locally, like the MP3 player, if you have files on your local SD card. Uh, so, yes, this is a definitely a difficult problem because of all the interdependencies. And this has to be solved somewhere. We don't have 
a recipe for doing this? This is, I think, an open research question, which is what makes it interesting for us, obviously. Do, do you see legislation on the horizon that would limit uh, the manufacturer's ability to, to force obsolescence on devices? Well, uh, I would hope so, but uh, to be honest, uh, given especially in Germany the uh, interconnections between industry and politics, I don't. I wouldn't put too much hope into it because, yeah, even if the green movement, like say, was uh, Greta Thunberg and whoever uh, is you know pushing the agenda of being more sustainability, which I think should be supported by every really thinking human on this planet even if this has a great force i mean what has happened in politics since this movement started i mean the uh, students high school students are going out every friday protesting but did anything change in politics did we get new laws no we just started a new uh, coal burning uh, power plant in north rhine westphalia right yeah sure but uh I wouldn't see it that negatively because I think this is an hour topic that even for the far right wing politicians is, is really hard to avoid. Um, so, yeah, so and, and a couple of years ago, it, people were not even talking about it. That's that's right. It's it's at least uh, in public discussion. It's on the agenda of some people. But I think there are strong forces who, as long as they can earn money with, uh, you know, ruining our environment, will try to do this. But anyways, yeah, I always wondered why uh, of, of the discrepancy between, you know, all these right wing politicians like, oh, we want to protect our homeland. And yeah, sustainability is the first thing to do it because otherwise you won't have a homeland anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm into academia, not in politics. <laughs> and this has several good reasons, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, the pattern you describe of obsolescence, I mean, it's not only in, in phones and IT, but you also see it in, in cars. Um, I mean, the, the more connected cars become, so the same problems they will have. Um, yes, right. So is, it, is there some way out of that this? A car is something that has to work for 10, 15, 20 years. And it's the same problem like uh, the amount of energy or CO2 equivalents you spend by producing a car is very high and uh, with all the technology going into more modern cars like teslas or whatever it's it will be a difficult problem and it's i think it's it's actually an open research problem for embedded systems researcher how to ensure updatability because you just can't go and change and upgrade all the electronic uh, control units in your car every two two years just because a new version of your autopilot software has come out and for so i think what for devices sorry. with with safety properties or or to put it bluntly for devices that can easily kill people um you might also not want to give everyone the right to to arbitrarily flash software onto critical components so that, that also opens yeah. another dimension to the problem Right. I, I, I already wonder how Tesla is doing it, for example, because they have the capability of updating or changing device or car software over the air. And usually, at least in Germany, you need a very, very complex and long certification pro uh, process to get any software accepted for running a car. So I'm really wondering how this will work out. I, I haven't read much about it, so maybe another interesting thing to investigate. Um. Another aspect of this problem is um, that 
even if you stick to your old hardware and even if that works fine that uh, you're sort of unable to run modern software on it for some of the reasons you mentioned but also because uh, the new software will be far more resource hungry right that's, so that's because all new software is basically just another web browser that displays a web page yes. <laughs> yeah so so here we use uh, slack so I'm an IRC user on the internet for, I don't know, 20-something years, uh, which essentially gives you the same functionality minus pictures. And so an IRC client is, I don't know, if I compiled it myself, a couple of hundred kilobytes, I'd suppose. Uh, Slack uh, uses up so much uh, memory and computation time on my small MacBook here that it's actually just amazing that it can run anything else in the background just because it's written in JavaScript and stuff like this uh, using web frameworks. And of course, uh, this, this is also a symptom of our programming approaches today because I see it with many of our students. So programming today doesn't mean you think about an algorithm, implement it, but well, there's Stack Overflow, there's GitHub. So you want to do something, you figure out a simple way to plug components together. And then you download a couple of libraries from the internet and just uh, hope that they work together and you don't care about the resource over it because your PC is fast enough. And people have had bad experience with this because especially for some web applications, JavaScript or something, they don't cache all the libraries locally, but they just refer to maybe a GitHub repository. And so when the developer of this repository decides to shut it down, which has happened several times, all their software won't run anymore, not even resource inefficiently. But there's... I mean, the, the positive uh, way of looking at this is that a single programmer can achieve things now that uh, a couple of years ago would not have been possible um, because you can reuse tons of stuff. You can grab tons of libraries and stick them together and usually something useful comes out. But the, the, the resulting problem then, of course, is that you have this mon monstrum uh yeah like slack um yeah so it's hard it, it feels a bit unfair to to say this is uh, a uniformly bad thing because it really enables uh, also the, the creation of new software that that's right but uh just doing it carelessly you know creates a problem it's it's not reusing components i mean that's what we should do and this is good software engineering practice but uh we should be able to select parts of components we should be able to yes configure and analyze dependabilities uh, between uh, or dependencies between different components inside of a large library so if i look at the compiler side uh until not too many years ago uh, you always had to link complete object files To, to a certain executable file you were generating, even if you only used one of the functions out of this. So stuff like function level linking took quite some years to actually, yes, uh, get used in, in standard compiler tool chains. And of course, uh, this is already a complex use case. If you're using source level languages like JavaScript, whatever, even if they're obfuscated, it might even be easier doing static analysis and, and throwing things out that you don't need. But I think the we don't have the correct tooling for doing this. But, but I think that, so uh, two points for this. So uh, the the componentization of uh, software has been the recurrent theme of this podcast so far. So um, for those 
uh, of the listeners who haven't uh, listened to the first two episodes. The first one was um, by Alex Enier Componolit, who has a whole company uh, that deals with the development of uh, trustworthy software components. And then uh, the second episode was with uh, Norman Feske of Gnode Labs, and they develop this whole frame operating system framework uh, called Gnode that um, is exactly like you described. So you basically start from scratch and you have a, a pool of uh, working components and you um, just add components until the thing does what you need. But on the other hand, there is this uh, this this way of designing software that you take the most uh, complete framework that you can that you can find, which I think at the moment is something like Electron. Um, you get yeah. you get something like 20 million lines of code, and then you sort of dump it down. Um, yeah. To to uh, fit your use case, and uh, it, the nice thing is that with the move away from from JavaScript, so the cool kids now write in Rust. Uh, so with the move yeah. away from these super bloaty languages to more um, uh, systems level languages that can be used without shooting your foot every two seconds, I think there, there is the hope of uh, a bit more efficient software in the near future. Yeah, but I'm amazed it works as well as it does at all at the moment with web applications. So there's an interesting analysis you can do, and this brings us a bit f closer to compilers again, I suppose. So, of course, you don't run JavaScript today anymore because everything's running in this uh, cut-down version of JavaScript called WebAssembly, right? So WebAssembly is just a JavaScript subset. And uh, what you can do is actually, of course, you can generate WebAssembly code from whatever source code you can imagine if you have the right compiler. And there have been interesting developments. So one of the most relevant compilers development, I say, in the last 10 to 15 years that also had quite some impact on research is the introduction of LLVM plus the related compilers like Clang and so on. So the LLVM is a uh, framework that was originally intended by its author, so Chris Lettner. He uh, actually built this as his master's thesis uh, for doing lifelong program analysis and optimization, something that sounds pretty much close to what we would need for enabling sustainable software. So LLVM actually uh, has a variant that's called mscripten. And mscripten is a tool that actually enables you to compile your C or C++ code, not to machine code, as you would usually do, but down to WebAssembly. Now you would imagine this would be horribly slow because JavaScript doesn't have pointers and dynamic stuff and so on. Uh, so you'd have to translate and emulate everything and essentially write a machine, risk machine emulator in JavaScript, which is what people have done, like Fabrice Bayard, who uh, wrote an x86 and a RISC-V emulator you can boot Linux in your browser in. But that's not what they're doing. So essentially, they managed to compile their stuff down to pretty efficient WebAssembly. And on the WebAssembly side, there's another compiler technology coming in, which is the just-in-time compiler that compiles the WebAssembly code efficiently at runtime to the machine code of the device you're running your browser on. And there have been some benchmarks that actually managed to compile C code to WebAssembly and then run it on a platform 
which yielded better performance results than just natively compiling C code down to machine code on the same machine because the uh, just-in-time compilation process was actually able to analyze dynamic properties of your code and use it to optimize the execution, which a compiler just looking statically at your code can't do. So this makes it interesting, but nevertheless, uh, still the amount of memory used and still all the overhead you have to do because all this just-in-time compilation uses up energy because you have to run code to translate your, your WebAssembly code to your native machine code and then execute that. There, There is lots of things that can be done in this area, I suppose. So whenever I hear the... The, the JIT success story, I always have to think about uh, watching Java application start ridiculously slowly because they're uh, sort of uh, starting in this unoptimized state and slowly entering a world where they're actually usable. And uh, I think in JavaScript, it's, it's a bit the same. Yeah, but that could be fixed by caching approaches. And there there have been solutions for this for almost well, 20 years, I'd say. So back then, when we had uh, at least some heterogeneous platforms and not only x86 PCs, uh, Microsoft actually uh, started porting their flagship operating system back then, Windows NT 3.5 and 4.0, to platforms that were not x86. Originally, Microsoft started developing Windows NT not on an x86 platform just because Microsoft didn't want their programmers to use all these nasty tricks they learned in decades of DOS development but they started on a MIPS workstation platform on the DexStation 3000 essentially and uh, so portability was built into Windows NT and this is what still enables it nowadays to run on ARM devices instead of just x86 and so back then uh, you had a the first 64-bit RISC architecture that was in widespread use which was the DEC Alpha which was quite a fast machine for its day so back then when a Pentium style PC ran at about 120 megahertz your alpha would run about 500 megahertz and you could even get these machines for affordable prices at PC uh, store chains in Germany I bought one from the Vobis company which no longer exists I, still, I, I think I still have it somewhere in the basement now the interesting thing is here Microsoft had a software problem because Microsoft themselves ported some of their applications to Windows NT on Alpha, like Office or something, but almost no third-party vendors would actually make that effort and port their software over. So selling a hardware platform without any application software obviously is a hard thing to do. So DEC actually went all the way and wrote an x86 emulator for the Alpha, which was a combined static and by a dynamic binary translator. This product is called FX32. And uh, essentially what they did, of course, the first time we ran your application, it ran pretty slowly, but then it recorded traces of the most commonly used instruction sequences or code sequences, and it cached this along with the executable. So your software got optimized more and more the, the more often you used it, and no one used a completely new functionality, like when you started to, whatever, use spell checking in Word for the very first time. It took some overhead because then it had to compile stuff again. And so we could use the same for JavaScript, for Java, whatever. But of course, there's lots of overhead, so standard JVM isn't doing it. There, there's some research efforts going on at Oracle. So I've been working at Oracle Labs, but in a different department for a number of years. But an old friend of mine from a university actually has worked in the group developing advanced Java technologies there. 
and they were developing things uh, frameworks like uh, called Graal and Truffle that actually helped to optimize uh, executing uh, JIT executing code especially JVM code even more and these are really interesting open source projects maybe worthwhile to take a look at maybe this shows a bit where where the development might be going but this is a multi-year effort by a lot of people so it shows how complex this problem actually is so um, you mentioned an interesting thing and that is uh, different architectures so these days um, the action is usually not with proprietary software but uh, many large businesses are basically reselling open source software and the nice thing about open source software is that i can okay with with some asterisks um, i can just recompile it and then it runs on whatever architecture i want and so you also have um, projects like risk 5 which is um, uh, very much alive and uh, yes. where there are many many people um, researching or building hobby processors. Do, do you see any um, light at the end of the tunnel in, in that area? Yeah, I think things might be becoming interesting here. So one, one problem is, of course, there are already pretty much open source versions of Android that enable you to use your phone longer, like... Uh... No, I forgot the name. <laughs> Lineage OS, is that still a thing? Yes, right, Lineage OS, right. Um, now, the problem is uh, you need to get that software onto your device somehow. And many vendors actually lock your device so you're unable to upgrade the software on your device even if there would be a version available and you have to do some nasty hacks or use security holes in order to exploit them to, to flash new software onto your device. So there are interesting developments. So a friend of mine is uh, the CTO of uh, the company Purism and you maybe heard about that company. So they have uh, developed and sold uh, notebooks which were as open source friendly as possible, like disabling Intel management mode and stuff like that, having an adapted open source Linux distribution. And last year, uh, they started developing a mobile phone, the LibreM5 phone. And so this device is as open source as possible. So even you can get schematics, manufacturing diagrams, and so on. And uh, you also have a privacy-oriented device, so you have hardware kill switches, you don't have any system management mode, or what nowadays is called telemetry, so essentially spy functionality in it. So uh, they did a great job, you know, in getting this device to work, and you can run whatever you want on it. So there's not only their own pure as Linux mobile distribution, you can run uh, mobile Qt Mobile on it, you can run even Android on it, or whatever you can imagine. Um, so you can run your own Linux distribution if you're an operating system hacker or port NetBSD or Plan 9 or whatever you can think of. And the hardware is open, so you get the source code to, for all the drivers for your base SOC, which is a Motorola AMX8 chip, which is originally uh, built for the automotive industry, actually. Um, there's only a couple of very small exceptions where you actually can't get any source code. Most of this is in uh, mobile uh, wireless drivers like uh, 4G and uh, Wi-Fi, just because, well, the vendors won't actually give out any specifications on their mobile chipsets because these are small computers in themselves. So every Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, uh, 4G, mobile radio, has a small ARM processor or a couple, maybe even runs their own version of Linux. And so what the Librem guys did, and girls, uh, is uh, they actually 
try to isolate these devices from accessing memory for security reasons. So they're only connected over connections like SPI or a USB bus. Whereas in many phones, the 4G modem, for example, has direct memory access to the complete memory of the device, usually just used by the main processor. And there have been memory security problems, for example, in Broadcom modems, where they actually remotely hack a device by a security hole in this wireless modem, and then just access all the data on that device, which is obviously not what you want. But of course, the problem with the Librem devices, and there's also different projects, like there's a company building mostly embedded systems, a company called Pine64. They have announced uh, uh, something called the Pine4, phone, which is a bit of a lower cost version, but with same ideas uh, of the Libre M5. So also an ARM SOC running a Linux version. Uh, the problem is economy of scale. So you need to build millions and millions of devices to get the prices down. So the Libre M5 currently is, I think, about $700 and has the features of a mid-range phone today. So most people maybe won't be able to afford it or wouldn't like to afford it. Not everyone thinks spending a thousand euros or seven hundred dollars or whatever on a mobile phone is the right thing to do. So, uh, so I'm using a cheap Chinese phone that cost me 150 euros, uh, and still I'm trying to run it as long as possible. Let's see how this works. Now, anyway, so if more people would buy these devices, prices would go down. Obviously, you have hardware information, uh, you have all the software as open source, you can adapt stuff yourself. You can decide which updates you want. So I think uh, PureOS simply uses uh, either APT packages from Debian or, or these Flatpak packages uh, to, to update software. So essentially, you have more control over it. Now, the problem is this works if you're some sort of operating systems nerd and want to have root on your device. But how about the normal user? How about the end user? Think about your grandmother who just wants to have video chats with her grandchildren and play a game of Mayong every now and then. That's that's a problem we have to solve, even in software engineering, how to make this feasible, how to tell the normal user what, what is important in upgrading your software and what just a feature you wouldn't need or wouldn't want to have at all but there's also one other problem with this uh, from the sustainability angle and that is that even the nerds typically have this as a second phone so uh, yes few people commit to having this as their main phone because i mean at some point in your life you want to you want to get an uber and unfortunately there's no uber app for the for the purism so right which is strange enough because most of these apps are just you know somehow uh, more or less uh, well heavily clad web frameworks they should work on a firefox running on a linux mobile distribution but of course there's too many dependencies and they don't want to support it for whatever uh, imagined security reasons or whatever Yes, it, it, it is a problem, but uh, it's it's an interesting way to look at this. So I still remember when the original iPhone came out in 2007, I think. So the original iPhone didn't have any capabilities to develop apps outside of Apple. So Steve Jobs originally announced that all app development will happen in the browser. Everything will be an HTML, JavaScript, whatever application. And people started complaining because they didn't know how to make money with this and they wanted to use the power of that local device instead of, you know, going through the web browser. And so half a year later, Apple actually gave in and published the SDK for the iPhone. And, well, that's how our millions of applications and all our app stores came to be. Uh, Google did the same with Android. And... 
Now, the, the, the funny thing about this, you know, it's not an open platform, neither Android nor, nor iOS, because you have these walled gardens. So you have to send in your application. You have to get this okay from Apple. And if Apple doesn't like anything about your app, like you're using a picture of whatever shows a nude part of a body, even if you're only consulting uh, mothers how to do breastfeeding or stuff like that, yeah, your, your app just won't get published. And similar things are happening on, on, on the Google Play Store. On Google devices, mostly you can at least sideload apps. Apple is act actively avoiding or hindering people in jailbreaking their devices to do that because they uh, actually forbid you to downgrade software using cryptographic methods. Uh, so when you upgraded your software to a new version and you found out, oh, it has a horrible bug, you can't go back. Essentially, your device might be useful, useless for you then. So for the for the Android users, uh, somehow. for yeah. the Android users, uh, lots of open source Android apps come via FDroid, which is the third party app store, and I think also most of the higher end Android phones have unlockable bootloaders. So technically, there is the ability to um, have third party app stores, and technically, there's the ability to run a full blown. Uh, third-party operating systems on your phone but realistically few people do that because it's a it's an it's a hassle and you need to be the the nerd and you have lots of uh, pitfalls and also things tend to break and usually people right. don't want their phones breaking yes and uh, the the only way to solve this maybe would to be to establish a new open mobile software platform, but even Microsoft failed in establishing their Windows Phone platform, and they put millions and millions of dollars into it. So I think getting a third force into the market, which has the market penetration of actually enabling Uber applications or whatever Skype or whatever you can imagine that you might need on a mobile phone, this will be a hard problem to solve, I suppose. And it's probably even more than hard. Uh, I'd say it's probably impossible at this point in time. I mean, uh, it's not only that Microsoft failed, also Mozilla failed with the Firefox OS, I think it was called. Right. Mm -hmm. Ubuntu um, failed. Ubuntu failed. So lots yeah. of players failed uh, in that. And that actually makes me a little bit, um, well, pessimistic about the, uh, uh, about the purism thing because, well... Why, sh why, why would they succeed where so many others have failed? Um, yes, that's a I mean, I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I mean, I wish them all, all the best of luck. They did yeah. fascinating things which, with so little manpower and they have a development team really spread all over the world. So they're a distributed company like what you would imagine in 21st century software development and hardware development. And uh, so I would really love to see them succeed. But yeah, it's it's definitely not easy, and I, I really applaud them for trying. <laughs> Me too, but uh, I remember Open Moco. Um, yes, I still have for, one for the, the for the younger Moco people. Yes. <laughs> open Moco was this uh, first attempt, I think, at a really open source phone with lot, with open hardware and open software, and um, yeah, they, they went bankrupt very very fast. Yeah, that's it. So, and, and no venture capital company will actually invest in something like an open source phone where everything is open source down to the schematics and FPGA code or whatever you can imagine. Because, uh, yeah, every company wherever could just start legally cloning that device. So, there's no obvious way, there's no business concept behind it to make money fast, you know. 
because that's not what the Purism people intend to do, obviously. I mean, they're a social company, so they're, they're, they're not even uh, required to earn money. But of course, as soon as they start lo losing lots of money, it's not sustainable anymore to run that company, I suppose. So we're back at the beginning with sustainability now on a completely different level. <laughs> so maybe uh, coming back to the sustainability angle a bit. So uh, where do you think uh, will your research take you? What What is on your horizon on the research front? So essentially, I think one of the interesting things is actually to figure out where all this bloat comes from and to try to figure out categories. So is there bloat coming from increased hardware requirements? Like when you go from uh, HD resolution to 4K, you have to push four times as many pixels uh, in the same time to, to display your picture or something like this. Uh, can we actually split our software into pieces which are essential for ensuring security and safety of devices uh, and all the other things which just can be factored out somehow and you can just ignore them. So this would probably require a different approach to software engineering, which is not something we can do alone. So we need to do this on a, on a larger level. But still, there are interesting examples of what you can actually build with just small amounts of resources. So just on uh, my desk here, and I can uh, send you a link to my blog where I describe this system, is a small FPGA board. And uh, this contains a system actually built by Niklaus Wirth. So Niklaus Wirth Uh, if he listens to this, I don't suppose he will. Happy birthday. So his, his 86th birthday was last Saturday. Uh, so he was a professor at ETH Zurich and he still is developing software and hardware. So he's maybe famous for developing the Pascal software. Some of our listeners might have uh, yes, experienced as their first programming language. And he developed a small system uh, called the Oberon system, which is a joint hardware software development. So he built a small risk processor with a set of peripherals. He wrote a very simple operating system, a graphical user interface, a compiler, and a couple of small applications. And all of this is running, usable, uh, with a 25 megahertz CPU, one megabyte of RAM, and a couple of megabytes Uh, of uh, an SD card storage. Uh, and all of this is open source, by the way, so you can download it at projectoberon.com. There's an excellent book describing all this stuff. And Niklaus Wirth was one of the first people actually starting to think about lean software. So essentially, there's uh, he uh, was awarded the ACM Turing Award in 1984. And uh, 10 years later, he uh, published a paper uh, called A Plea for Lean Software, where actually probably was one of the first people on earth to figure out what the problems of yes we have so much hardware available so fast we have so much memory what these effects might actually lead to to all this bloat in software we have nowadays so uh, if our readers are interested there's this project Oberon book which is a free PDF download which is fascinating to read so you can actually read through the whole source code of the hardware and the software for the system on a rainy weekend so it's only a couple of thousand lines of code which is probably larger than A small scale, uh, smaller than a small scale bootloader, even for an operating system to, uh, today. And if you're more interested in uh, these things, there's a nice book called The School of Niklaus Word, where his former PhD students and colleagues actually wrote about how his ideas influenced their work and research. I can only recommend it. 
And you know, there's also something that's called Wurth's law. So you probably know Moore's law. Moore's law is a law just, uh, well, it's not a law of nature, but just an observation that has held for very many years that says the number of transistors on a chip will double about every 18 months. Now Moore's law has come to an end because we are reaching the limits of uh, shrinking hardware because we're getting close to subatomic levels and well that won't work because you need electrons to pass through somewhere on your circuit and so we won't get any faster. So Moore's law is what actually has driven all this software evolution over the couple of last 20 or 30 years because when you started a large-scale software project and your computer you were using was not fast enough uh, so you say, oh yeah, it takes us two years to complete this project. So until then, computers will be fast enough to run our software efficiently. Right? This doesn't work anymore. So if you look at the achievable processor speeds nowadays, they haven't really increased much over the last 10 years. And so you get more processors on a chip. But we actually don't know today how to efficiently program parallel processors. You have GPUs and stuff for specialized applications, obviously, they work pretty well. But for general computing, it doesn't help very much. It's mostly number crunching, uh, things like these. Uh, so for playing video or something that might help, but not for doing your text process more efficiently. I, I so seem to remember a paper that um, tried to measure uh, interactivity of software over time and uh, it also showed a decline uh, i wonder whether i find that uh, if i find it i will put it into the into the show notes um but i think that, that what you say is completely right so for number crunching we're like uh a hundred thousand times faster than uh, uh like 30 years ago but uh, for the user experience uh, it's sort of stagnating yeah, so, so essentially Wirt formulated also something like a law which says software is getting slower more rapidly than hardware becomes faster. Which is an interesting observation because the software bloat is easier to achieve than just increasing the performance of your hardware, obviously. So obviously we don't have working solutions for it. I just started here. It's the idea of getting a overall, yes, objective for my research for the next couple of years in different areas like yes iot embedded systems where i'm coming from obviously joining this up with techniques and operating systems in compilers in just-in-time translations binary translations and analysis to see where this might be going so we might be able to contribute a little bit to a sustainable future of our planet i certainly hope so so uh <laughs> all the best to you um, Thank you. <laughs> I think this is a, a good point to to put a, a period to this this episode. I think we, we covered a lot of ground. Um, I will certainly do my best to to add show notes to all the interesting things that you mentioned. Um, uh, thank you for taking the time to come to the podcast. Uh, it was much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity. Uh, I really loved and it's a great idea to get your things across, definitely. Yeah, and I think uh, we we have to do a revisit at uh, some point in the future. Um, yeah, let's see in a couple of years where this might be going or yeah, maybe we fail completely and we have to do something else. I don't know. Well, that's not a bad thing in, in research. Yeah. It's a bad we thing if you're try. researching yeah. sustainability, right. though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> it's a bad thing for the planet. But yes. uh, overall, we, we can't do it alone. We can't do it alone 
as a research group we can't do it alone as computer scientists it's a problem on sociological on ecological and economical level so essentially we'll have to join forces with researchers from other, dis other disciplines just to to ensure that uh, we can can get something working on a larger scale That sounds like a, a good final word to this podcast. Uh, All right. So <laughs> thanks, Michael. Yes, maybe, maybe I can close with one thing. Okay. That's a nice meme on the internet. So there was a saying, what Intel gives, Microsoft takes away. <laughs> Very true. And, and that's probably my closing words for today. Uh, thanks, <laughs> Thank Michael. You, Michael. <laughs> um, Thank you for hosting me. Thanks. <laughs> for the listeners, um, as always, uh, feel free to uh, give us feedback on the episode. Um, you can find us on uh, Matrix or on our IRC channel. Uh, it's UKVLY on Freenode IRC or the same name on, on Matrix. You can find it on the website. Um, there's also a Twitter account of the same name that you can tweet at. And of course, this um, uh, podcast is hosted at syslog.show where you find all this information, including the show notes. Um, so every feedback is uh, very welcome. Um, and with that, I would say goodbye and until next time. Yeah, so from Norway, Hade Bra, have a good, have it good. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, until next time, I'm really interested to hear what you're coming up with on with interesting topics in the future. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye. -bye. bye.